Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Anna Murad. I'm a general pediatrician at Vanderbilt, uh, Monroe Carroll Junior Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt. And we are delighted to be hosting the TIPQC podcast talking about the triple-demic. And we have as our lovely guest here today, Dr. Riti Banerjee. Welcome, Dr. Banerjee. Thank you so much, Dr. Murad. Pleasure to be here. So we are excited to hear from you and uh, want to get started with you telling us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do. Sure. I am a pediatric infectious disease physician. I'm a professor in the Peds IV division here at the Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt. I take care of children who have complicated infections. These are children of all ages from birth to young adulthood. I also have a role as the director of the Pediatric Antibiotic Stewardship Program. That's a program that tries to encourage providers to use antibiotics judiciously and wisely. So use them when they're needed, but don't use them when they're not needed. And we're trying to do this in both inpatient and outpatient settings. Very important work. So we have you here today addressing what's being termed as the, by the media as a triple-demic. Can you explain a little bit about what that term is referencing, and do you think that's accurate? Is it something that's going to be super scary, something that we need to know more about? Sure. So I believe the triple-demic refers to three respiratory viruses that are circulating currently. So there's obviously covid which the numbers of COVID that's circulating are much lower than they were at other points earlier in the pandemic, but there is some still low-level circulation of COVID. There's also a very high amount of RSV. And then the third virus we're seeing circulating concurrently is influenza. And so I think that's where the term triple-demic comes from. Whether or not that's accurate, I can only speak to what we're seeing locally. So we are definitely seeing a lot of children who are infected with RSV and influenza, and we're seeing this in the outpatient setting as well as in the hospital. So a lot of children are getting hospitalized with RSV and influenza. We are not seeing very high numbers of COVID, and I think that that's comparable to what's being seen in children's hospitals nationally. Right. That's sort of what I'm hearing from other pediatricians as well. Is it possible to have more than one of these viruses at the same time? Yes, absolutely. We see this a lot. We're using, especially in hospitalized children, multiplex PCR testing that looks for multiple different viruses at once. And that's how we pick up that sometimes children have both RSV and a different virus like COVID or parainfluenza. Can you talk a little bit more about RSV and what that stands for? Sure. RSV stands for respiratory syncytial virus. It's a very common virus that most children are infected with within the first couple of months or years of life. So it's, it's a very common respiratory virus. 
that most pediatricians are very familiar with. Now, typically in the Northern Hemisphere, in the U.S., we see RSV circulating in the late fall and early winter. So it really peaks in January or February most years. What's happened since the COVID pandemic is the circulation or the seasonality of RSV has become very skewed and unpredictable. So after we did, and, and, and we don't really understand completely why that's happened, but in large part, we think it might be due to the mitigation efforts we all, you know, the behavior changes we all did during the peak of, of COVID. So schools were shut down, we were wearing masks, and we were social distancing. So really young infants were not exposed to RSV like they normally are during a typical season. So what happened was in 2020, we saw no RSV, which was really unusual. And then in 2021, we started to see RSV, but earlier in the year than we typically see. We started seeing it here in Nashville in the spring and summer, which was very strange. And this year, 2022, we started seeing RSV in June and July, low amounts, and that's continued to steadily increase until we, you know, we started really seeing very high levels of RSV in October and into November. Do you think we're seeing older patients? Yeah, I think that at least anecdotally, it seems that we're seeing in the hospital children who are slightly older than we typically see hospitalized with RSV in a usual year. And by that, I mean often the infants, the really little babies, a few months old, when they would get RSV, they would have some trouble breathing and they would require hospitalization to get supplemental oxygen, sometimes uh, ventilation. But we didn't typically see older children, toddlers and school-age children come in with severe symptoms from RSV, presumably because these older children had some pre-existing immunity from having seen RSV when they were younger. So what we're seeing this year, though, is we have these cohorts of children who didn't see RSV when they were infants because of all of our social distancing and masking. So maybe they're seeing RSV for the first time now when they're a little bit older. And that's why we're seeing more toddlers who are hospitalized with RSV this year than we would see in a typical year. I can say, though, we are not seeing more severe disease from RSV this year than we see in a typical year. And by that, I mean we're not seeing a higher proportion who are requiring intensive care due to RSV. That's a very important point to to sort of drive home because we're hearing about the large numbers of patients who are admitted and to know that they're not necessarily any sicker, just more of them. Can you talk a little bit about, there's a medication that high-risk infants can be given during RSV season, but it's not widely available for all infants. Can you mention just or explain why that is and then talk a little bit about any progress towards getting an RSV vaccination? Sure. So there's a medication called palivizumab. The brand name is Synergist. This is a medication that we give to our most preterm infants who have some potential for baseline underlying chronic lung disease. And they have a high risk of getting very sick with RSV should they be infected. Um, when they're very young infants. So palivizumab has shown to be effective in reduce hospitalization rates and deaths in RSV-infected infants who are the most preterm. 
And so that's why it's really restricted to the most preterm babies, and it's not given widely to, to other infants. In terms of RSV vaccine, yes, there's a lot of work that's being done on developing RSV vaccines. So there's no vaccine that's currently available. There's a lot that is in development, including RSV vaccine for pregnant mothers. And there's a lot of enthusiasm that, that um, antibodies that pregnant mothers who are vaccinated make would transfer to, across the placenta to the babies so that babies are protected uh, after birth. There's also a new monoclonal antibody that is shown to be uh, beneficial, at least in early studies, also not yet clinically available, but that might also be a promising therapy in the future. There's some exciting things around the corner, hopefully. Are there any effective treatments? You hit on this a little bit earlier, but effective treatments for RSV? So there are no medicines that can cure an RSV infection. It's really supportive care to, uh, to help the baby or the infant or, or, or young child who is having trouble breathing or who develops a severe pneumonia from RSV. It's, it's to, to support them while their immune system fights off this virus. So some of the measures that are done are where we give these patients supplemental oxygen if they need it. We can also help them breathe through breathing machines. Unfortunately, there's no antiviral that we can give them to make the infection less severe. So moving on to flu, do you have information about the effectiveness of the flu vaccine this year? And can you talk a little bit more about the purpose of flu vaccination? Sure. So I don't have any information about the effectiveness of the flu vaccine this year, unfortunately. And we often don't. We're in the middle of the flu season right now, or in some parts of the country, just starting. So we really don't even have information about vaccine effectiveness until season's over, unfortunately. The purpose of flu vaccination is really to to reduce the severity of flu infection. So it may, it may not prevent actual acquisition of flu infection, but there's a lot of data that people who are vaccinated against influenza, when they do get infected, have less severe disease and are less likely to require hospitalization. I think that's an important point that we often try to drive home for our families, that it really is to prevent severe illness. There's an age-old myth that I hear on a daily basis in my clinic. I got flu from flu vaccination. Hear it every season. And how do we know that that is not correct? What would you tell families about that statement? I would say there's any number of viruses that could be causing somebody's cold or upper respiratory tract infections, unlikely to be in influenza from the flu shot. And let me explain why. The flu shot is an inactivated form of the virus, it cannot cause actual infection. That's a, such an important thing for, for patients and families to remember. Are flu levels higher than in previous years? How do we know if this is projected to be a bad flu season as the media seems to be touting? And is there a reputable spot to see how much flu is actually being diagnosed in your area? So one thing about flu is it's always unpredictable. So we are seeing more flu now than we have in the immediate past few years. But again, we saw very little influenza because of all the masking and the social distancing we were doing for COVID. 
I don't know yet if it's going to be as bad a flu year as the media are predicting. I think nobody knows. We are just starting to see influenza numbers rise here locally. I think that maybe we're seeing that in other parts of the country as well, but only time will tell. In terms of area, uh, you know, areas I go to track how much influenza is circulating, I always go to the CDC website. They have a lot of very good surveillance of viruses that are circulating in different regions. I also go to the state health department website. Sometimes they also have good surveillance. And then I sometimes will ask our local microbiology laboratory director for our own local viral data to understand what we're seeing within our institution. And what are the recommendations for treatment for flu? Or what are some of the things that parents can do? Sure. So if your child is a high-risk patient, meaning that they have comorbid conditions or are immunocompromised, the CDC recommends giving Tamiflu or Oseltamivir at the, as early as they can after a flu diagnosis. Other things that are really important are, you know, washing hands, trying to stay away from school or daycare if your child is sick. Some In the hospital, we wear masks. So uh, that's also a way to prevent transmission of respiratory viruses. But I know nobody wants to go back to wearing masks out in the community. The most important thing that families can do to prevent severe influenza in their loved ones is to get vaccinated. Children and adults and everybody around that child, if they're vaccinated, can protect from getting influenza infection. I think that's a, a really important point, especially for this audience who may be in that maternal arena where they're taking care of pregnant women. Those infants are going to be too young to receive their first flu vaccination. They really depend on the family be vaccinated. So it's really important that everybody around them is vaccinated until they can start their series at six months. So it's a great point. And of course, going back to the masking, we're still talking about COVID. It is not gone. What? Who should be getting the COVID boosters these days? So everybody for whom it's approved. So I believe it's approved for ages five years and older. What are some of the ways that you are seeing children be impacted by COVID? So many children who are infected with COVID will have just mild respiratory symptoms and do just fine. However, because I take care of sick children who are hospitalized, I I have seen children with severe infection from COVID. Some of them have had respiratory failure, required intensive care, including mechanical ventilation. And we have had, unfortunately, early in the pandemic, some deaths due to respiratory failure. We have also seen over a hundred children hospitalized here with something called multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children or MISC. This is a post-COVID inflammatory syndrome that affects a lot of different organs, including the heart. And it is treatable. It just needs to be recognized. And the child often needs to be hospitalized in the intensive care unit to get optimal care. And then of course, we're seeing long COVID post-COVID fatigue or headache or symptoms like that that have been more frequently seen in adult patients, but we are seeing children come into our clinic with prolonged symptoms. Fortunately, I have seen data that within six months after a COVID infection, even those children who are continuing to have long COVID symptoms tend to have complete resolution 
over time. So that's that's a very good piece of information that, to reassure families. Incredibly hopeful, but six months is still a very long time. Yes. So I know that you do so much work around antibiotic stewardship. Can you talk a little bit about the recommendations around treatment of community-acquired pneumonia and how that sort of changed over time? Sure. So community-acquired pneumonia, it, we've learned through emerging information, number of different trials now that shorter durations are as effective to treat community-acquired pneumonia as longer durations. So we had some guidelines that were published by the Pediatric Infectious Disease Society and other groups in 2011 that said community-acquired pneumonia in children should be treated for at least 10 days of antibiotics. This is uncomplicated, okay? Anybody with complicated pneumonias that include empyemas or other really severe infections are excluded from this recommendation. But there have been trials, there's one in Canada, one done in Canada, one done in the United States that have evaluated children with outpatient treatment for uncomplicated community-acquired pneumonia. And they found that five days of antibiotic, whether it be amoxicillin or, or augmentin, was as effective and had fewer side effects than the recommended, previously recommended 10 days of treatment. So now the new recommendation is that we treat for five days. And, and the nice thing about this is that it's as effective and less harmful in terms of side effects on the children. Use the shortest duration possible. Does pneumonia always have to be treated with an antibiotic? That's a very good question. The majority of pneumonias are often viral. The challenge for us as clinicians seeing these patients is it's often hard to tell if it's a viral infection or a bacterial infection. But it is also possible if the child is relatively well appearing and not immunocompromised or otherwise high risk for a severe infection, to do what we call watchful waiting, which is to just say to the family to do supportive care, treat the child with a fever-reducing medications. And if the symptoms resolve, great, it was a virus. If the symptoms persist, then come back in or I'll call in a prescription or we'll do a chest X-ray or do further evaluation. I think as we learn more about what antibiotics are needed and when they're not needed, that work is so incredibly important. Are there other things around that that you would want our listeners to know? I think that the the other infection where it's really hard to tell if it's viral or bacterial that is so commonly seen in pediatric practices is ear infections or acute otitis media. The majority of these are viral infections that will resolve over time without any specific treatment. It's just a hard thing to do, right, because your child is really febrile and um, having ear pain, and you don't want to miss a bacterial infection. But this is another syndrome where we are very comfortable, especially if the child is two years of age or older, doing watchful waiting. And, and again, monitoring to see if in a day or two the symptoms are better without treatment, it was viral. So you saved that child a course of antibiotics. Right, which is incredibly important for their health. What are some of the best ways that you would tell families to prevent getting sick? What should families be doing? So vaccination is always helpful. So against every approved vaccine that we can give a child will protect that child from severe infection. So for example, 
We can, we can vaccinate against influenza. We can vaccinate against COVID. We can vaccinate against common bacterial infections like strep pneumo and haemophilus. That's really critical to preventing infection, preventing severe infection. The other things, of course, are good hand hygiene, washing hands, trying really hard to also get your children to wash hands, which is often not, not so feasible, but we do our best. And also just keeping in mind that the majority of infections that children get this time of year, especially while we have a, a potential triple-demic, are viral. And they can call their doctor, but they don't necessarily need to go in and visit their doctor with every fever. But if the, if the symptoms persist for a couple of days or their child's not eating or drinking uh, normally, then it's appropriate to seek medical care and evaluate if, if there's actually a bacterial infection or something else brewing. That makes total sense. I think it's it's always hard for parents to know when they need to be seen, and depending on those sort of benchmarks and symptoms, it's really important. To go a little bit off topic from the triple-demic, we have been hearing about the measles outbreak in Ohio. We know from Tennessee Department of Health that our, our kindergarten immunization rates are really not where they need to be. When we look at county-level data, there are some counties that are at higher risk than others. But we know measles vaccination is one of those things that is important for kindergarten enrollment. And if we're missing that on a larger scale, there's concern that we're going to see measles outbreak similar to the one in Ohio. Do you have some thoughts about what families need to be doing now or what they would be looking for if there were a measles outbreak? So I think families need to make sure their children are up to date on all their childhood vaccinations, including measles and also polio. Polio is another virus that we thought the U.S. was polio free. And then we know, of course, that there's been polio that's been uh, transmitted in New York State. And there's they're actually detecting polio virus in the sewage in New York State, meaning there's ongoing transmission and spread of that virus, which is a, a, a terrifying and debilitating, devastating infection. Anything that looks like measles, fever, rash, and if your child is under-vaccinated, consider that it could be measles because my guess is, you know, if we have measles circulating in Ohio, it's only a matter of time that under-vaccinated pockets in other parts of the country will also see, uh, period, you know, measles, measles. Such a highly contagious virus, and so far it sounds like the the patients in Ohio are unvaccinated patients, is, is what has been reported thus far. But like you mentioned, it's not that far away, and we, we need to get our vaccination rates up. And so hopefully we can get through this triple-demic without having too many illnesses, and we can get into the summer, and, and this will all be behind us. I'm looking for you to say yes, of course. I hope so. I really hope so. And if people can get their children and, and, and themselves vaccinated, hopefully we won't see a big surge of COVID again. So, but that, right. that's also looming out there. Right. And washing vaccinations, the standards of public health. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Banerjee. This was incredibly helpful. And I hope to get to talk to you some more. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, presented by TipQC. TipQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. 
Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.